This is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast revisiting television, sci-fi, fantasy, and everything in between. This week, Earth 2, Episodes 6 and 4. Where we came from, we changed the world to suit our needs. On this planet, we will be the ones to change for good or for bad. Best grew a little but let go a piece of herself, maybe an innocence she once cherished. While others, like Alonzo, rediscovered pieces they thought they'd lost forever. Welcome to Continuum Drag, the podcast that comes to you in your dreams to describe the plots of TV shows you don't need to know about. I'm Luke, here with my co-host Jordan. What's real, Jordan? I'll tell you, Luke, sometimes watching this show feels like looking for a microtrip on the internet. Wait, what? Do you remember that? A mica trip? Microchip. It's just my speech impediment. It's that accent of yours. Remember what's his face? Uh, Martin. What's his name? Morgan. Morgan Martin. Morgan said that at one part where he's complaining because that's all he does. He says, he's like, what are we even looking for? This is like looking for a microchip on the internet. (laughs) I totally missed that. That's a great phrase. In the future, instead of a needle in a haystack, they're now saying microchip on the internet. What a great, what a great colloquialism. Yeah. I feel like I'm there. (laughs) All right, Jordan. Well, this week, as I said in the opening, we're we're jumping a little over the place because according to IMDb, we're watching episode six and episode four this week. According to the creators, this should have been the fourth and fifth episodes. But uh, you know what? We're going to we're living by those the IMDb rules. So if you're looking on there, these are the episodes we're watching. Well, Jordan, before we get into it, I think you've got something for us to do. I do. I think it's your favorite game, Luke. (laughs) <laughs> I know it's people listening at home. I know it's their favorite game, which is Guess the Roll. Yay! <laughs> I, I like the somewhat real enthusiasm is some fake of uh, enthusiasm. That's because the listener doesn't know we had to stop for a quick second and the edit point was between you saying your words <laughs> and me saying yay. <laughs> Don't give away the magic. the rules to this game for anyone who's not listened before is i'm going to give luke the actors that are in this show and i'm going to also give some random roles that they have played and luke's going to see if he can match the random role to the actor and so luke just so you know i picked 10 actors and they're 10 actors who are credited in every episode of this series all right so the regulars but there's going to be one little audible so who we have is deborah farentino who plays devin adair Great. Clancy Brown, who plays John Danziger. Sullivan Walker, who plays Yale. Jessica Steen, who plays Dr. Julia Heller. Rebecca Gayhart, who plays Bess Martin. John uh, Guggenhuber, who plays Morgan Martin. <laughs> Guggenhuber? I guess. I, or maybe it's Guggenhuber? No offense, but that character, a better name for him is like Martin Guggenhuber or Morgan Guggenhuber. <laughs> I agree. He's such a weenie. Um, We have Joey Zimmerman, who played Ulysses Adair, Jay Madison Wright playing True Danziger, Antonio Sabato Jr. playing Alonso Solis, and finally, Tier Turner playing Zero. (laughs) The only person who is in the other episode um, will realize there's a lady that we keep seeing. Her name is Magus. 
she's got like a mushroom cut and she keeps appearing. She's in every episode too. <laughs> All right, let's do it. I, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to guess the probably character name as we go through this. I'm not going to remember the actor name. Okay. So this actor slash actress played the role of Jal Surratt in two episodes of Star Trek Voyager in 1995. Ooh. It might be Yal Surratt, but I'm, I've, it's J-A-L, Jal Surratt. Star Trek Voyager. I'm going to go with Yale. Okay. Next character. We have the role of Luke in a 2000 episode of Seventh Heaven. That's got to be Yuli. Okay. Next, we have, this is a voice work. So they did the voice of Lex Luthor in 1996's Superman, the animated series. Uh, let's go with Dan Zinger. Next role we have is Dr. James Harmon in four episodes of The Cosby Show. Yeah, well, now I got to take back my Yale. You want to change that to Yale? Yeah, that's got to that's be Yale, right? Okay, and so who do you think played Jal Surratt in two episodes of Star Trek Voyager? I'm going to give that to Devin. Okay, this is a great role. This role was called Sorority Sister Lois in 1997's Scream 2. Oh, well, that has to be Bess. Rebecca Gayhart. We have the role of Pam Randall in the 1994 movie. I love the title of this. XXX's and OOO's. Dr. Heller. Next is the role was Johnny Clay, which is a great, great name. Uh, Johnny Clay in this 1997 movie called High Voltage. Let's go Morgan Martin. Okay. This next one is Elaine. And I picked this just because I don't know if you remember this Canadian show, but it was a 1984 episode playing the role of Elaine in The Edison Twins. <laughs> oh, no. My, the, only, the only actress I have left is True, and she's like six years old on this show. The role of Elaine, the Edison Twins. I'm going to swap Devin and True around. This next role is the character... It's a reenactment in 1990s Unsolved Mysteries. This person played Laverne Allen. Okay, it's zero. It's all of them, right? We have one last role, which is, this will be interesting to you. This person played Nova Thorpe in The Osiris Chronicles. Oh, oh, so that's that's true. I don't know who I have left then. Let me go through it. Uh, here's what I think you got right, and and maybe we'll correct it as we go. I don't even know who I have I have left to choose from. So <laughs> <laughs> it was it was maybe too many roles. So the role of Jal Surratt in Star Trek Voyager was played by John Guggenhuber, who's Martin Morgan Martin. So you did not get that one. Ah, did not get that one. You did get the correct answer for Luke in Seventh Heaven, which was Joey Zimmerman, who plays Ulysses Adair. I just had a feeling. You also got uh, the role of Lex Luthor in Superman, the voice work from Clancy Brown, who plays John Danziger. You got that one correct as well. You also got Dr. James Harmon, correct, from The Cosby Show, who plays Yale. Uh, That's uh, Sullivan Walker. Right. Another one you got right was Rebecca Gayhart playing the role of sorority sister Lois in Scream. It made sense. So that right there, you have four to five. And here's where it starts getting tricky. So the role of Pam Randall in XXS's and OOO's was Deborah Ferentino, who plays Devin Adair. So we did not get that one. So, that was wrong. Antonio Sabato Jr. played Johnny Clay. That's who I forgot about. So he played Johnny Clay in High Voltage, which has got to be a fun movie. And then the Edison Twins was played by Canadian actress Jessica Steen, who played mm. Elaine in that show. So the Dr. Heller is a Canadian actress. Mm. She does look familiar. 
you were correct again on Unsolved Mysteries. It was Tier Turner, who is a stunt performer slash actor. And then, yes, I didn't recognize her either, but Jay Madison Wright, who plays Chu Danziger, also played Nova Thorpe in the Osiris Chronicles, another show we've watched. As soon as you mentioned it, I was like, oh, it's got to be her. So you got six out of ten. That's not bad. Yeah, that's not bad. That's a pass. That's better than the reviews we give most of these shows. I had this conversation uh, the other day, and I was just like, if I got 60% on a test, it wasn't great, but I didn't see it as a total failure. Well, it's not a total failure. It's like passing and not the worst you can do at passing. What's the worst grade you ever got on anything? Oh, under 50% for sure. Probably like a couple 40s. Yeah, I remember taking a math test in grade 11, like the final exam, and I remember that you had to complete the first half and give that to the teacher before you could get the second half. And I remember just looking at it going, I can't do any of this. And I just gave in the first half and, and she was like, you didn't fill anything out. And I was like, yeah, just give me the second half. Let's just get out of there. I think I must have got like 5% on that exam. It was also the last year I did math. I had a university class like that. It was uh, some sort of philosophy math combination. It was insane. And I just didn't like it. So I stopped going. And went to the final, but I went to the final exam for some reason. And I just sat down and I knew maybe like two chapters of the book. So I was done in like five minutes. And I was like, well, do I just sit here? Nah, I just got up and like walked to the front of the day, kind of turned it in. I'm just like, I either look like I'm a genius or an idiot. And so you, uh, you got perfect on that? Uh, I don't think I ever looked at the grade. <laughs> well, I assume you did all right. I just like... With confidence like that. Idiots have my way to through it. <laughs> you want to do it, Jordan? Should we do these episodes? Let's do it. Here is the IMDb summary for episode six, Natural Born Grendlers. <laughs> I love that title. With narration by Yale, some problems intensify. Morgan seeks to escape reality, Alonzo suffers from severe depression, and the colonists need to supplement their food supply. Best now tries to barter with a Grendler. And that was courtesy of R.W. Zimdaba. I think Zimdaba has done them before, hasn't he slash she? Uh, I think it was last, maybe episode, maybe last two. I don't know. They, definitely, this seems to be the the person out there documenting the important things in uh earth two i do like that they have all of the there's like always about three or four plot threads that are going i would argue that each of them not interesting enough to be a plot thread but combined they make something really special yeah i mean let's i mean we can just mention that right off the bat here because i thought it was interesting is that like this episode is very different from the previous ones in that each previous one really focused in on a single character and this one is the first one to attempt to split its focus across two characters having storylines, like an A plot and a B plot, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But both of these, to me, felt like two B plots, neither intersecting, neither culminating. I mean, both culminate in something, but I, neither of them felt like the driving storyline to this episode. So it was just such a yeah. weird episode where it was just like two B plots. What it is, is it's, oh, we have a few other characters that we need to develop a little bit so the viewer knows who they are but we don't know what to do with them so i don't know how about these yeah and i thought either one of these could have been fleshed out to a full plot but it was just like well, we'll see what happens also really weird this one's voiced over by yale at least in the previous ones it felt like that character had some stake in the plot but yale has nothing to do with these two this episode <laughs> not only does he have nothing to do with the episode i think he's only in maybe two scenes so you have him doing a voiceover at the uh, top and, and the tail of the episode, and then he's in maybe two scenes. It's such a bizarre idea. It's like, he could do a voiceover another time when maybe you want to give him a plot. 
Also, Yale's voiceover is he's just like, and best grew that day to realize something in her heart. I'm like, how does Yale know that? Why is Yale omnipotent now? <laughs> it's it's this weird thing where it's this conceit they want for the show, but it hasn't worked from the beginning. And they just are just going all in that you have this narrator. And it's like, it, it doesn't need it, guys. And also, it doesn't really add anything to the plot. It's not like you get any great insight. It's just like, and we had to continue struggling. Like, okay, I can see that. It's a little bit, I mean, our previous guest mentioned this, but it does feel a little bit like a precursor to how Lost ran their episodes in that, and I don't know if you ever watched Lost, but mm-hmm. each episode would focus in on a character and that character, instead of voiceovers, we would see a series of flashbacks to fill out that character a little bit. This seems to be doing the same thing. It's like each episode, it wants to give a character the spotlight via voiceover. But yeah, it does, it's not working. <laughs> No, it's not working. But on that note, we get to open in the a real sexy scene. Yeah, well, I was going to suggest this too. It's like, why don't we go through Solace's plot and then we'll switch over to Beth because they never intersect. Uh, Solace, uh, Sabato Jr., he is going for uh, the record of most annoying character in this in this episode, which I think, and look, I, I know it's being a little insensitive because I understand what they're going for. I just don't think it's effective at all. But... Of a series of characters which each of them are getting to be annoying, he's really going for the crown. I mean, yeah, here, this is the thing, is this plotline is, we've seen glimpses of it that Solace is having trouble on Earth too. Like, he is depressed, I guess, is the idea. Yeah. And that's this whole episode. It's like, hey, Solace is depressed, huh? And I'm like, uh, yeah, we, we know. <laughs> I'm going to make fun of him, and it's not making fun of depression, but I actually don't think this is a very articulate or nuanced take on an actual mental condition it just seems like he's moping around because he doesn't get to be as cool as he wants to be yeah i would say it's it's interesting i found this too like i thought the episode was just like it feels like a point in society where it's like people are starting to recognize maybe depression isn't just like stop being such a sad sack but this episode still is just like not sure what it is either yeah because what you feel as a viewer is to say stop being such a sad sack yeah, like they want to show sensitivity, but they also don't know how to articulate what depression yeah. is. So it doesn't work. But yeah, the whole thing starts off in one of Solace's dreams. This one was interesting because I, I didn't think this one had anything to do with like, this wasn't the Terrians invading his dreams. It didn't feel like it just felt like this was just like literally a man's dream. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a sexy dream he's having. He is in, you know, classic white sheets draped from the ceiling. You're under white silk sheets. It's all very beautiful and like... I don't know, like romance novel Yeah. And who is he having sex with but Dr. Heller? They're not having sex. It's postcoital. It's the morning after. But you can tell stuff has happened. It's a weird moment where we're like, oh, I guess, you know, I guess they've been seeding there may be some romance there, but I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it too much or that he was into her, but apparently very much so. Mm-hmm. They imply that she's impressed enough or uh, uh, flattered enough by his mention of her in a dream that that seems to be all that it takes for her to be interested as well she's really being saddled with a real florence nightingale romance isn't she yeah she just has to take care of him and how sad he is and they're gonna fall in love because of it exactly that's exactly right but as dreams do that transitions into stranger imagery and eventually we'll see him attempting suicide or maybe trying to fly off the side of a cliff because he misses being a pilot so much. But a Terrian will grab his leg and stop him from flying away or committing suicide, depending on what the metaphor is. And then he wakes up and you realize it was all a dream. Yes. And um, we finally in this episode learn his true age. 
Oh, yeah. He says he's either 109 or 110. Yeah, so old. Yeah. He basically, since he became a pilot, this time on Earth 2 has been the longest stretch of time he's been awake and or out of cold sleep. So he basically was just flying missions, going to sleep, flying missions, going to sleep. So he is awake for like max a week at a time over that 110 years. Yeah. Wouldn't it be crazy you'd lose touch with everything? Like, you wouldn't know any of the cool slang? Yeah, I mean, that's more difficult to show in, in, a, in a TV show like this. But um, it would be the thing, right? It'd be like, every time you wake up, they're like, look at your weird pants. You're like, oh, I gotta adjust my pants again. They're gonna be flared again? I mean, if you were awake for less than a week, you wouldn't even have time to figure out, like, any like anything that was happening. You'd, you'd miss so many trends. That's like the, um, oh, what was it? The, the Joe Halderman book, uh, Forever War, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I guess that is a bit like Forever War. Weirdly, I have read that. The whole deal is that it's the same thing. Every time they go to sleep, by the time they get back, they're so out of touch with society. So, yeah, I mean, it'd be a fun thing to kind of touch on, but it'd also make his character even more useless if he just couldn't even communicate with anyone. Also, it's tough to show, like, the slang you missed in the future that we don't know either. <laughs> right, right, yeah. You can't drop a, co- a cool hint. They're like, you don't know what jaws are? He's like, no. And I was like, no, no one does. <laughs> no one was alive for that. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, he's basically frustrated uh, because of this broken leg. And he's got, like, trying to use his new leg brace. And it's difficult. And this whole thing is just kind of to show that he... He basically is is depressed still. Like, he is not happy to be on this planet. He's not happy to have a broken leg. He didn't take that bone juice that fixes your leg. <laughs> yeah, he really should have taken his bone juice. Um, he gets in his little go-kart, drives off into the desert, and makes an attempt to drive off a cliff to commit suicide. And it's shot actually pretty well, and it, and they have the, the locale for it, those, um, I think it's Utah, like those sort of... Uh, large plateaus that have uh you know cliff faces and he goes to drive off in his doom buggy the uh uh, tarians show up sort of pop out of the ground and it looks like they sort of like push the buggy over or something like that or he it makes him crash and it's sort of shot in a weird a shaky version but basically the point is he falls out of the buggy doesn't go over the cliff and is injured in some way at least he's like knocked unconscious yeah and then he enters another dream state in which an old woman appears to him well, he, she starts out old, and then he's like, who are you? And she's like, oh, maybe this is easier. And then she becomes young and attractive. And uh, it's an ex-girlfriend of his. Yeah, an ex-girlfriend of his. And she basically is explaining to him, I guess, what he's afraid of. And it's just like, it's okay to grow old and face your mortality and, like, live your life. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, I guess, the lesson he needs to learn, and which she, like, explains to him in this dream. They really need him to make this turn of, like, I'll give them credit. They've at least seeded a little bit through this show that his plotline so far is he's unhappy. And now they've given you the reason why. It's actually a greater fear of his of aging. And because he can't keep going to sleep now, now he's forced to age on this planet. Okay, I just don't know how how much more I care about that character now that I know that he's afraid of aging. And now, by the end of the episode, eh, he's fine with it. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, basically, as she explains that to him... He feels better. She turns back into an old woman. They make out. They kiss. Yeah, they, they have a yeah. real make out session, which was great. I was like, yeah, get it. I liked it because he goes to kiss her and then it's got that classic like while he's kissing, she dissolves. But it's not quite the seamless effect they're looking for. It's it's about 95% there. Yeah. And then he wakes up, gets back on his go-kart and uh, Dr. Heller discovers him back in his tent, cheerfully using his leg brace again. And uh, he tells her. Hey, I, uh, my depression's cured. I had a good dream. Yeah. 
Well, what I like, though, is there's a couple times um, in this episode, I think both times at the beginning and end of the episode where he tells her about his dreams and he mentions that she was in it. Like he gives this information. He's like, I'm really depressed. I'm actually 109 years old. And she's like, did you say I was in your dream? Like, that's all she's concerned about. And at the very end, he's like, I'm cured. And she's like, did you dream about me again? <laughs> it is. I mean, here's the thing. This isn't a bad character. This could be an interesting long term thing to develop. But like. It is as if they're like, all right, we spent three episodes vaguely showing me in the background, being a little sad. We gotta, we gotta get past this depression. So, ah, he had a cool dream, and now he's better. And it's it just so weird. That's pretty much all that you get from his plotline, and it really is only a few scenes, just kind of jammed in there of like, now he's better. I, though I did like, and this is just basically the final shot of the episode, is it cuts to Solace sitting on that same cliffside, kind of just looking out at the sun setting, and he and there's just like a Tarian standing behind him. And like, I've just like, imagine him, the Tarian, they're just like chill bros now who hang out at night. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is a weird thing, though, because they don't talk, right? So the Tarian's just standing there. It's like they're cool pals, though, which I like. I like that he's made no friends with anyone in the crew or on the cast. But the idea that he just, like, goes and hangs out with Tarians in his free time. Whatever gets him through this horrible, crippling depression that he's had because he's 109 years old. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, and that's it. That's the whole plot. It's it's insane how quickly it goes by. Um, so let's, let's hop over to the best storyline. Uh... Essentially, what we find out is the the convoy is running out of rations. They're really stretched thin. So they've set up camp to search this forest in the hope of finding some edible vegetation, but no dice. Okay, I had a problem with this. So they say they're running out of food rations. I think they said, I don't, you probably wrote it down. They said they had months and months of rations and they're already going through a good chunk of it in, in a much faster time. And then they said, we're looking to see if there's any edible vegetation. Julia has gone out and said there's none. I got a couple problems with that. One, I wouldn't trust Julia's findings as far as I could throw them. You don't think Dr. Heller's science is any good? <laughs> she has proven episode after episode that she sucks. So there's that. And two, there's no edible vegetation, none in this entire planet that they researched and put uh, conceivably billions of dollars to fly these entire people over into the world so that they could repopulate. There's no edible vegetation. I could see plants all around them. <laughs> Come on, Heller. You, you doubt her her ability to find edible vegetation. I think she walked off, she took a nap, and came back and said, nope, couldn't find anything. We've also got old Morgan Martin, our uh, sleazy government official. He's spending his days wearing a VR headset in what is a, to me, hilarious VR sequence. So, well, there's a couple of things. The, the most important thing is, I love that every science fiction show we seem to do, or at least every other one, has to have someone using VR. If it's the, if it's the early 90s to mid 90s, VR has got to be put in. People were obsessed with it. But I like that his VR <laughs> VR uh, scenario or whatever world that he he's entered is just him at a table like a very fancy sort of restaurant table, you know, white tablecloth and just full with food and he's eating gigantic like Fred Flintstone sized meat while a butler stands beside him and he's rude to the butler. That's the fantasy he's living out in his VR world. It is very funny because even the butler isn't happy to be there. It's just like, what is it? What is his idea? Eating food with his hands. He's just having a great time. I was like, this is, and it's all shot in a black box. So it looks just like so mm -hmm. insane. Like it just is the most insane thing. I'm just like, what is happening here? And then you get to see him too, you know, obviously from other people's perspective. And he just, he's, you know, smacking his lips and sucking on his fingers and stuff. And 
He just looks like a weirdo. But uh, the other point I want to make about this is this episode really should just be called like man children because <laughs> it like they're just focusing on these these characters, both um, Alonzo and Morgan, and they have this arrested development of like their maturity level. And the poor actor who has to play Morgan episode in and episode out, he's got the worst scenes and dialogue they have. like there's never a scene where you're kind of on his side like he just no matter what it is he's there to be an annoying that's his whole character so it's like there's nothing to like about this guy i honestly i enjoy his character more and more every week if only because they're just they've just decided to paint him as a cartoon character of just like the most whiny privileged little man ever and like they don't attempt to like make it realistic or attempt to make him human, it is a cartoon. Yeah, he's the equivalent of, like, a uh, wrestling villain manager. That's the level of uh, of depth they put into him. He's just he's just there, so you go, oh, I just, I just hope something horrible happens to him. I really like it. It makes me laugh every time. <laughs> but interesting on this, uh, this scene, though, you get that scene to see that he's annoying, and he's wearing his VR, and uh, uh, his wife, Bess, has come out of the tent because he's annoying her with his VR, and uh, Devin goes, hey, you guys got to pack up. And like, you guys are always taking too long. And she sort of like very lightly scolds them that, you know, implying that it's been day after day, they sort of are last to pack up because Morgan is taking his time. And the first thing I thought, though, is what cheek Devin has. Now, I'm not saying they aren't probably taking their time, but we've just had, I don't know, three episodes where Everything has had to stop because of her stupid sick kid, and they've had to go out of their way for their sick kid and deal with their sick kid. And it's like, why don't you just keep your mouth shut? If anyone's holding things up, it's you and your horrible child. I mean, they almost get there with this episode with this, but like, yeah, Devin really dresses her down. In her, like, I think she tells them to be adults or something. And uh, yeah, it's it's a, with a character who you don't have sympathy for in Devin I don't know you're right like I thought there was something working there but they never quite stick the landing on it where like maybe Devin is a bad like they keep implying she's a bad leader but never enough that I'm sure if it's on purpose or whether the writing just doesn't know how to write a leader I think that's what it is I think they don't know how to write her so what she's coming off as is a authoritarian difficult to deal with mom yeah I mean it's true Uh, but as they're packing up to go here a Grendler drops into camp. As we will remember, they're the little, like, uh, dark crystal creatures who are great. Fun to look at. They look better. Like, I like them better than the Tarians, the actual costume and stuff. I think they just look great, and they and they really accentuate the drool out of their mouth of the puppet and stuff. It looks good. Yeah, and the Grendler's showing up. He's got a little alien fruit, and uh, it kind of looks like, I don't know, I thought it was like a tiny watermelon-y kind of thing, maybe? Yeah, like a split, split between, like, a, a watermelon and a mango. It's something I love watching these shows, Jordan, that I had no idea was a thing I loved, but I love it when they show us an alien fruit, like on Planet of the Apes when they're showing us those fruits. Yeah, I love it. And I wish, I kind of wish they'd given it a name, but I loved it too, because we do get to see it cut open too. And it sort of looks almost like the inside, uh, like a large fig on the inside. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know why I'm obsessed with this alien fruits, but the more we do this, the more I realize, show me more alien vegetation. I agree. Well, Luke, but there's there's very little of it. Dr. Heller's already told us. There's very little out there. She can't find there's any. nothing, probably. She can't find any. <laughs> this guy's finding him no problem. It's like when she was going to organize that search party to find Solace, but never got around to it. Or or when she couldn't figure out the difference between a uh, seed and a, a horse embryo. <laughs> oh, Dr. Heller. Um, at any rate, this granddaughter shows up with this fruit. 
bafflingly, despite what she's been told about Grendler's, Devin just thinks it's there to give her a free piece of fruit. So she just like takes it out of his hands and it's like, hey, thanks. Thanks, guy. Thanks for this fruit. Yeah. And like the Grendler. And it freaks out. Yeah. The Grendler can't speak. So it's just like pointing at something, clearly indicating it wants it. And Devin just can't wrap her mind around what this thing wants. So it like snaps a solar panel off of something. And then there's just some extra there who's like, like trigger happy. And he's just like blast the solar panel. He basically tries to shoot the Grendler. The Grendler puts the solar panel up. It shoots it. They have you know, missed. And then he, the Grendler runs off and they're like, well, that didn't go well. Well, before the Grendler runs off too, much to its credit, it grabs the fruit back. Oh, did it? I, I missed that. Oh, so it left with everything. Yeah. It like grabs the fruit out of her hand and just like storms off angrily. And I'm like, good for you, Grendler. And uh, Devin's the worst leader. She's just like, yeah, I wonder what happened there. She she like, cannot sort it out what that was about. Yeah. I know it's like everyone around can figure it out. Like, oh, he's come for some sort of trade. Like, you must have some sort of knowledge of a, for lack of a better term, some sort of more primitive alien that you're dealing with. You have to deal with it in very simplistic terms because you don't have the communicative abilities. And she's just like, well, I don't get it. It's not working the way I think. It's funny, too, because... I know they don't trust Gaul, but he literally told them they're traitors. It's not like this is new information. <laughs> yeah, there was no indication that he was lying about that. At any rate, uh, we sort of cut from this to something that is crazy to me that they've established so far in advance that I just recognize it as her character trait. But like Bess goes off for one of her walks, which she does every episode. We see her going off into the wilderness. It's true. And as she's going for a walk, there's a point where she like hears like the hooting of like an owl-like creature or something. And when she turns around, she is like nose to nose with this Grendler, like face to face with it. And I was just like, she's remarkably calm for uh, turning around to find this thing right in her face. She just says, uh, I think she says, uh, you're an interesting looking fella. And then you're like, ooh, ooh, and then cut to commercial. Cut to commercial. But when she gets basically gets back to camp, she's fine. As uh, we know, the Grendlers don't seem to be that aggressive. And she's uh, carrying a bunch of fruit with her. And uh, it's very funny because she walks in and Devin is just in shock. Like, where'd you get that fruit? H- how did you How did you get it? And it's so funny because Bess's reaction is just like, oh, yeah, I just like bartered like we do on the stations with the Grendler. Like, you know, like you would do with a human. And Devin just can't wrap her mind around it. Because she's just like, they're like, yeah, I just traded like you normally would. And she's like, wait, what does this have to do with my son? And they're like, it has nothing to do with your son. And she's like, but my son is clearly sick. And they're like, um, it's about trading. And she's like, did I mention I have a son? <laughs> well, and I, it's very funny. And I, you know, it's still something, it's a theory I've been building this whole time that has little evidence, but uh, but my my view of it. But it really does keep selling me on this idea that, like, because we get the idea that Morgan and Bess are okay off on the stations because they're, like, government officials. But even she's saying, you know, mm-hmm. you have to barter for things, sort of implying a black market or something. And it's just the idea is, like, Devin is so rich and so out of touch with, like, anyone below her station. that It just seems like this is less, like, you know, Devin, how we barter. And she's like, well, I've never had to want for anything because I am very well. <laughs> I think you make an interesting point. Again, much like I think in the, the the previous podcast, I think you're adding more context than the writers ever did. Now, I don't disagree with you, and I think it maybe makes it a more interesting character. I think the probably the reality of it though is just she's just a poorly written character. But I like your take on it. It's, it's becoming my take. I just more and more I just see her as a very wealthy woman who has who's sort of just like out to get her thing done. 
and she has trouble relating to anyone as a result. It's like she really wants to talk to the manager of Earth, too. Right. <laughs> exactly. But what I like, though, is so they get all the food and they want to test it. So they bring it to, to Dr. Julia Heller. Terrible idea, as I've noted. <laughs> and so they're going through. And I like that they're, they're, she's going through all these tests. She can't figure out if this is edible food or not, which is come on. And, and and she's like, I just don't know. I don't know. And then she's like, only one way to find out for sure. And she eats it. And I just wrote, again, what a terrible, terrible doctor. It is very funny. She eats it. And she's like, mm, it's tasty. And then she's like, well, I guess it's edible. And then, like, Bess walks in the tent. And she's like, what are you guys doing? And we're like, oh, we just figured out this food's edible. She's like, yeah, I could have told you that. I ate one on my way back. Yeah, I was just, they have communication problems. But also, they got to get rid of Dr. Dr. Heller as the doctor. She could do something else. I just wanted, yeah, that's true. That is true. She could do, she could, she could, she must be another skill she has, right? Yeah, she must have. She seems like a, a very personable person. I just don't think she's a doctor. <laughs> I mean, they did establish that in the first episode of the of the thing. That that's true. There was like, she's a bad doctor. And as you know what? It's becoming evident she is. Yeah, yeah. Even though her genes were spliced to be good at it. Oh, and she also mentioned in the scene that I, I don't know if it's because of her genetic makeup of the manipulations they've done as a, when she was a child or whatever, but she mentions that she has a really strong stomach. <laughs> I was like, wow. I hope your parents paid extra for that. Going back really quickly to the uh, Bess and her getting this fruit, this goes back to her husband manchild a little bit because she bartered with his VR gear. Mm-hmm. And he's really upset about it. Like, he needed it. He's sort of talking about how it's like he needs that VR hit if he's going to keep going. He can't live in this reality. He must escape it. She sort of is like, I get it. I appreciate it. But this is more important. She's very sympathetic to her whiny, whiny husband. Almost too far. It's almost too much. Well, I think part of it is they establish that they're a married couple, but we haven't actually seen, even in their personal private scenes, what it is specifically that these two see in each other. I could see what he sees in her, because she seems like a, a quite nice, intelligent, helpful person. Him, again, he's this cartoon character, so they kind of hint at it, but we haven't really seen what it is that she finds so endearing. Yeah, my best guess right now, based on the very little information we have, is I feel like maybe Bess was from a very low standing in this world, had the opportunity to marry, or like meet and date this bureaucrat, and married him and it's not that it's just like purely transactional for her but i think there's some like that love that marriage is also tied to like falling down back to a station where she didn't want to be so she is very supportive it's very like loving to him and is trying to help him get ahead but there's like a it's based on a fear of falling back again i think that's very interesting i think maybe giving too much credit to the show i think you in your head are writing a better show than this is I, th- I honestly, I think there are elements of it there that maybe aren't ever going to fully, fully realize. But I just feel like if there, if there was a character bio, I bet you we would see something similar to that in that hmm. character bio. Hmm. That's my bet anyway. Um, I also like, regarding that VR gear, every time we see the same Grendler again this episode, the, the VR gear doesn't fit his head at all, but he's always got it over his little ear. It's very fun. <laughs> well, I think what it is is it saw you know a human wearing it and it it's wearing it essentially as jewelry yeah exactly um but basically all the, all this culminates in that Bess is being put in charge of bartering with glendlers mm-hmm. but i'll say she's put in charge with it but devon and yale can't stop being annoying parents they're like helicopter hovering over her while she's doing it telling her what to do and i know they're they're supposed to be annoying and they are annoying but again it's just such a weird thing that 
we haven't learned enough about these characters to really care about them so they're just annoying they are really micromanaging her like they send her back to the cave with a bunch of like these space flashlights that we've seen before they've got like two mm-hmm. places lights could come out of and they don't seem that effective do they not not overly they're cool to look at but they're like kind of weird but they basically send her back to the cave they don't want to go in with her because the grendler seems reticent to accepting them into his circle Mm-hmm. But uh, they, you know, they give her like one of those communication devices and send her into the cave with this Grendler alone. And they're the entire time they're chatting in their ear, like, "Don't, don't get a bad deal, get a good deal from the Grendler." And, and, and not only that, they're like, look over here, and they're telling her how to use the uh, the headset and stuff the whole time. They're like, "No, no, do it like this." And she's just like, "I know, Devin, I know how to use it." It'd be like if someone gave you a cellular phone. It was just like, "Okay, so here's the button icon." You're like, I, "I know, I'm, I come from the same world you do." You're like, "No, no, no, no. Do you know where the on button is?" Let me show you. Let me show you. Here, give it to me. Give it to me. When she goes inside the cave and is like, you've got Yale in her ear and he's just like, I believe this is an actual quote. When she's showing him the flashlight, he goes, show him the features. Show him the features. <laughs> show him the features. <laughs> like, what, what is happening here? But, but, but she does make a trade. Well, but essentially, like, she's got all these flashlights to trade. And she realizes when she looks around the Scrandler's cave, he has boxes of flashlights. Like, he helped raid one of the original things, so he's not interested in more flashlights. Oh, and we should say, he's clearly not using any of these things. He's just piling them up in his cave. Yeah, he's kind of gathered their technology, but it isn't something he knows how to use. It is just something I think he views as a trading implement. Like, he knows it has value, but he doesn't really know what it is. So, Bess makes a trade with a bracelet she has. She happens to have a bracelet on. It's, you know, this is where this show is getting iffy, especially as the writing gets worse. It's just, like, trading shiny baubles with the indigenous population and like is it being handled sensitively not really yeah it's it's slightly problematic it is because you like Bess as a viewer and you want to be on her side but the idea that possibly she's dealing with something I'm not going to say it's less intelligent than humans we don't have any indication of that but is not at the same communicative level because it can't speak English which they're all speaking and she's clearly giving it things of less if not worthless value for things they need because of this communication problem. And it's you're just like, oh, that's that's not good. I mean, and this show does seem in some way to want to address those ideas of colonization, but it just doesn't quite know how to do it is part of the problem, too. Like, it just never lands it. No. I believe even at some point, you've got Devin and Yale yelling in her ear while she's in there to take advantage of him and make trades that are bad for the Grendler. <laughs> but we, we just hand wave over all of that. But yeah, Bess essentially trades this bracelet. What she gets out of it is she sees a few things that might be useful, but uh, Devin and Yale really want this drone they see that she sees in there, a, a hover scout, they call it. Mm-hmm. She's more interested in the uh, geolock, but they're like, no, 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 we want the, the hovercraft. And when they get that hovercraft back to camp, unfortunately, broken, doesn't work. None of their stuff seems to hold up very well. We've seen a lot of their, like... I know we need Danziger to be doing something, so he always has to fix stuff, but, like, stuff is constantly breaking in this world, so it makes me think they don't have the greatest supplies. The second thing is, of course things aren't going to do very well if they've been sitting in a dank cave with this creature doing who knows with what the stuff. He could be just banging against a wall all day. To make matters worse for Beth, when she goes back home to her tent that night, uh, Morgan's basically in the just, like, such a little baby mood because he hasn't had a hit of virtual in 10 hours and he's basically like getting angry with her for helping out the the team i believe what he says is like we made vows to forsake all others and like take care of me (laughs) and weirdly it seems like a crazy argument 
but she's sort of you could see her being swayed by it yeah and that's the thing is like somehow it works the argument it it Mm-hmm. there's a there's a way that could work and like maybe but it's just like he's such a baby and she seems to be becoming such a self-dependent person that it did feel like this should alienate them not bring them closer together agreed essentially what it does is it makes Bess go back to the grendler she wants to get his vr gear back and she's essentially made a necklace out of utensils like it's a really where this like trading for useless shiny baubles gets the most egregious yeah, and it's sort of like, don't you like this thing? Don't you want to have this piece of crap so I can take the good stuff? And it's like, sure, I trust you. We seem to be friends and are trading on an even level. Yeah, exactly. But she gets his VR gear back, and she also goes ahead and gets that uh, the geolock box she saw and mentioned to Yale and Devin, who hand-waved it off. She kind of was like, well, if you don't want to listen to me, guys, I'll go back and get the things I want by myself. She's kind of like, screw the group. Morgan's right. I should take care of myself. And... She brings back this geolock box, which is, I guess, used in mining. Yeah, so what it seems to be, and correct me if I'm wrong, Luke, what it seems to be is if you own a mining company and you have found some sort of natural resource that you want to protect, like you are mining gold, let's say. Yeah, you're making a claim. Yeah, so you have this machine that has, it sort of just looks like a, a screen with a kind of a panel, and then it's got these four little canisters. And you set it to, say, wherever the, the area is that you're looking to protect, and what it seems to do is quite literally lock the area as the geolog. I didn't quite understand how it worked, but basically it looks like the little canisters go into the ground and are they freezing the area? They're they're making it just impenetrable. I thought it was going to be like a force field, but what it looks like is actually some sort of like rock matter that locks the area. Yeah, I mean, what we see is they, they say it can lock up to a kilometer and they just like lock about an inch just to test it. And we kind of see them pull it out and it looks like... Um, what do you call it when you pull a uh, core sample out or something? So you mm-hmm. see all the levels of the ground underneath it. I think this to me was one of the most fun pieces of weird future tech they've shown. It's weird and specific, but like kind of interesting. Yeah, I think what it is is it maybe just like takes the matter that's there and like just binds it together. So like they say no no pick or shovel can break into it. It's essentially, yeah, a way to hold your claim so no one else can steal from you. Why would they have brought that on this mission? I mean, I think the idea is a longer term one. Like it is the idea that they'll go, they'll find some resources, they'll want to build a mine there and to ensure, I guess, that it stays that way. I felt like it was just basic mining material like they just Mm. brought with them. I don't think they thought about it too heavily. She thinks it's important. They test it out. And what I like, though, is in this seed, it sort of like shakes the ground a little bit. Devin comes to their tent and Bess comes out. Bess and and, and Morgan both come out and, and... Devin's sort of like, oh, well, we got more things we want you to trade and stuff. And uh, Bess just stands up for herself and basically is like, do I work for you? No, huh? So how about no, and I'll do whatever I want. So why don't you go look after your stupid sick kid? And Devin's like, oh, but, oh, okay. And she leaves with her tail between her legs. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is kind of, this is the argument basically that's been happening is Bess is just like, well, yeah, I, I did trade for this geolock, but we should give it to the group because what it can do is lock the ground so that the Tarians can't pop out whenever they want. They still kind of think the Tarians might be a threat mm-hmm. to Yuli. So she's just like, this could really help out Bess, really protect her son. And Morgan's just like, we should hold on to it because we could lay a claim here for our future. Like we could be homesteaders who like lays a good claim and that could set us up on this land, you know, generationally, like kind of moving mm-hmm. to the new world and getting a gold mine or something. And when Devin shows up and just starts ordering her around, that's what it kind of, you know, radicalizes Bess mm. against Morgan or against uh, Devin because Morgan's right. Like this woman sees her 
as an employee there to service her. This is a thread that the show, I think, is intentionally putting throughout the show, and I think it is working. There's an interesting idea of everyone arriving. It hasn't gone smoothly, to say the least. And what you're getting is people's unhappiness for very re- various reasons. They're sort of splintering off, and this idea of togetherness and camaraderie is separating. And I, I kind of like it. I just don't know if I like the way it's always displayed in this show. But I, I think the idea is interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is like through the subtext and the possibilities of the show, there's something interesting there. Like the idea that you have to pull together to survive and that is working. But then you have Devin leading the crew who sort of is tone deaf and dictatorial at times, which would obviously separate her from kind of the people who came along here to start a new life or are stuck here. They're not all working for the same goals. Yeah, they're just not landing. It's not quite working, right? Agreed. But, I mean, it's so funny because that's wraps up the episode. Like, we had a plot with <laughs> Solace is no longer depressed. And we have a plot where Bess gets a geolog. Because we're watching these out of order, or the intended order of the creator, but we're watching out of the order that they aired. I've actually gone ahead and watched, by mistake, another future episode. So I have a little bit of insight of where things are going, at least for one episode. And one thing that is interesting, at least to me, is that they're looking for this kind of journey-type show. This sort of, like... We've arrived in the new world, and we're going to travel across to the west, to the chosen land sort of thing. And I don't know if it's as exciting as they think it is or interesting. I like the idea of traveling and, and coming across new aliens and new situations they have to deal with, but they're not doing that. It's sort of like they arrive in a place that looks just like they were before, and they're like, uh, I'm unhappy. And then they pack up and they go somewhere else. And then someone's like, I'm unhappy. And I'm just desperate for them to... Like, Gredlers are fine, and Tarians are fine, but it's like, we're now five episodes in, and that's all we've seen. The possibilities seem so endless, and they seem to be, for an entire world that they have to play with, they seem to be really, really narrow in their expectations. The world building has been minimal, and I don't, and to this point, and I don't know if you've noticed that I certainly have, because we're like, we've watched four episodes with this episode. I would say, if I think back to the pilot, they have organized or discussed organized a search, organizing a search party to find a missing member at least four times now. Yeah. Every episode, someone kind of wanders off or goes missing. They never even have a full search party scene, so it's not like we get a search party scene. But I don't know if an episode's gone by where one of the key plot points is like, should we organize a search party? I'm like, how, how many search parties do we need to organize in this show? Let's say in episode two, they got to where they were going and they started setting up their colony. It would change nothing in this show. It's not like the journey has added anything. Because if they want to have, as you're saying, people keep disappearing every episode, they can disappear from the main camp. It's just one of these, like, they want this journey, but they're not really giving the viewer any of the interesting aspects of said journey. And things like Alonzo getting over his broken leg, are, I just don't think are enough enough things that are not strong enough to hang a serialization on. Yeah, it's, not, it's definitely not like... And I will say this, I obviously liked all the previous episodes up to this one. And this one is a huge slip. And I'll be honest, we'll talk about the next episode in a second. I also think it's not a particularly hot episode. Doesn't really work very well. We've established, we're like, yeah, okay, this world, these characters, great, we're in. But what, it's starting to feel a little meandering and repeating. And because it's just like, okay, it's the same aliens. It's the same characters doing the same things. And it's, it just seems like we're not progressing at all. At least that's how I feel. Well, and I'll note, I, my point was, too, is both these episodes are written by the same person, now, who mm. hasn't written any of the previous episodes. And I do th- wonder if 
there was sort of like they had an idea of where they were going. And obviously writers rooms have groups of people working together. But clearly they're like, this episode is about this character and they're going to get to this point. And this episode is about this character and they're going to get to this point. And some writers were just able to take that material and do more with it. Like this episode feels so perfunctory. And then next episode, we'll get into it in a second, Gall comes back and where he was like more entertaining and like at least interestingly written and performed this next episode is still well performed by tim curry but much much poorly written like he's written much poorly more poorly much more poorly in the next episode man i could not finish that sentence well that's a good opening let's get right into the the next episode all right here's the imdb summary for episode four promises promises julia says biologically we have more in common with a mosquito than we do with a tarian But something tells me we have more in common than any of us knows. With narration by Alonzo, Yuli's health severely deteriorates as the Tarians suffer from Gaul's use of the shock collars on them. Courtesy again of R.W. Zimdapa. And let me just say, I know I mentioned it a few minutes ago, but I watched these out of order. So I actually watched this as the episode that came as episode as four as it aired before so before this one we just the one we previously talked about and what really bothered me was that we essentially have three episodes of gall in a row now in the order that the creators intended there's at least an episode in between gall coming back but still it bothers me how fast they brought him back he feels like a real ace in the hole and i liked him curry and i it just feels way too soon for his return like isn't there something exciting about the anticipation that you've set up this rather complicated villain yeah and this antagonist and later down the road things are going to happen that are going to make his appearance mean something because of of whatever's happened like we said maybe disharmony in the group and things and i just think it's like hey he was great let's bring him back again or they were block shooting they had to have him there and i was just like oh he's back again like okay no i mean you're not wrong and part of it is too he's so the culmination of what was set up is so poorly executed here that it you know, it just it detracts from everything that came before it. Well, and it also it just feels like this whole episode feels like an, an addendum or like uh, a post credits scene that they've stretched to a whole episode. And it's funny, actually, you talked about how you watched this after the last one. This actually the idea that those three episodes would go together is actually a fan choice. That was this is how the fans put together the order was that as a trilogy It's not how it originally aired either. Oh, yeah. See, I don't like it that way, but I'm not a fan. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this episode opens on Solace. He's dreaming, but this time he's having a waking dream. The Tarians can come to him now, even when he's awake. Yeah, and he's he's not cool with it. Um, but essentially what the Tarians are telling him is quite literal. Like they, He sees Tarians being enslaved and put into shock collars that we've seen on the penal colonists who were sent to Earth to earlier. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, he knows now that something's wrong. The Tarians are asking them for their help. And they actually kind of have to stop because they encounter their first rainstorm. Yeah. And I liked that. I think what they're implying, and maybe you have some insights in it, Luke. I think they're implying that obviously these people have all grown up on space stations. So they're not used to natural phenomenon like rain and things like that. But I think they're implying that they're all worried about rain because it might be something like an acid rain maybe on earth the environment has been so there's been so much deterioration that rain and stuff is scary that they've just seen it from like history or something would you agree with that 
Yeah, I mean, that. I think that is the implication. They don't know if the rain is going to be toxic or not. So when they encounter their first both rainstorm on the on this planet and in their lives, they're very concerned at first. And then Dr. Heller is able to test it. Yeah, she tests it. She's just like, you know what? There's only one way to test this. I, I can know. And she just goes into the rain. <laughs> I mean, I do think she has a, a piece of equipment she says is non-toxic with before they jump in. But there is kind of this scene where they're jumping around in the rain and there's this weird part like they won't let yuli go in and i guess it's to imply in between the episodes yuli's because they kind of like oh yuli you can't go in you're too sick i guess yuli's condition is deteriorating his syndrome is returning and i'm telling you if i don't have to have another episode about yuli and his illness it will be too soon because i just i'm so tired of this kid's plot line it's not interesting at all do you care do you care about this kid at all i mean not particularly at least he got to wear that robocop gear again Agreed. He's much cooler with the Robocop gear, but too bad the whole time he's like, I can't breathe. <laughs> um, so Yuli's getting sick again. This is another part where I think they really blow it is he's in his tent getting sick and they decide that True pops in and she needs to bury the hatchet. She comes to mm-hmm. apologize for that horse she stole. She wants to be friends again. And it's just like, I don't know. It, they've spent so much time establishing there's this like real discontinuity between these two kids because of their life experience. And they kind of just shuffled away here. We're just like, all's forgiven i'm gonna bury the hatchet with this kid because he's sick and it is like throwing away something that i thought was working really well but they do sort of try to develop the idea that dan now is a little bit hyper aware of true and what she's doing like he finds her in the tent talking to yuli and freaks out because she's gone out without his permission as she's want to do yeah well that and this is something i want to note too is yeah there's this idea is like you aren't allowed to go out at night anymore you have to stay in your place but have you noticed most of the characters we know sleep in tents where does true sleep true sleeps in like a car she sleeps under a vehicle is it under the vehicle because at some point someone comes to wake her in the morning and she sleeps oh you're right under a vehicle the the class system here is out of control you're right. You know, I didn't even think about that. I know I've seen her because he he's put her in the car a few times, and I uh, just assume she slept there. But you're right. She is under the car. It is crazy that, like... Maybe she's just comfortable that way. Well, that's it. She's just like, I told you not to leave the vehicle. That's where you live now. It's, like, under a vehicle. Yeah. Anyway, so they kind of squashed that beef in this episode, which I regret. I think that was a great beef. Solace is kind of telling everyone we got to go to head to that nearby mountain range so that, that we can deal with uh, the Tarians. Because, as is revealed here, to everyone's surprise, Devin made a promise to the Tarians in return for Yuli that she didn't mention to anyone. That so, But, uh, you know, Devin, to her credit, says we should probably help them either way because, you know, we're new here. They are going to be our neighbors. It's the polite thing to do, which is, you know, respectful. But it's always everything she does is always so self-serving. It's always so hard to balance. I think you're right. That's a good way of describing it. It. And it's funny that it comes after an episode where she just scolded someone right at the beginning for essentially being selfish. And that's all of her motivation for everything. And there's sort of this debate. I mean, we, the audience, are pretty clear on what how this interaction is going to work because we've seen other shows and like we've seen how the Tarians are. But there's a sort of debate amongst the group now of like, are the Tarians purposely causing him to regress or is it related to them in some other way? And, I, you know, I think what we'll know is, like, because Terrians are getting shock colors put on them and they're being, like, enslaved, they're deteriorating and hence their fates are tied to Yuli. 
Yeah, Yuli and the Tyrians are like an E.T. with Elliot and E.T. They're connected and somehow when one suffers, the other does too. It's true. And, you know, so all this is going on. They're trying to figure out what's happening. And True is making amends with Yuli. And she kind of is noticing, like, obviously, Devin, she sees her behind a tent crying over her son's deteriorating health. And so True is like, I got I got to do something. I got to go help. She wanders off into the bushes. Danzinger's clearly not keeping that close an eye on her still. Mm-hmm. And she blows that whistle Gull gave her. It's like a bat signal. Yeah, he just pops up immediately. My assumption was he's actually just been following the whole time. and He's right there just waiting because he, he shows up way faster than you think someone would be able to show up. And here again is a thing where I think the previous writer did a good job establishing this relationship and why maybe true additional reasons true might be interested in Gaul or be into his way of life. In this episode, the writer, I think, picked one reason and ran with it and it's the worst reason because basically Gaul shows up and Truce is like I need you to help Yuli's getting sick it seems to be related to the Terrians I need you to use your magic to save him because I know you're a wizard you made it rain on us you're a wizard and even Gaul's like there's like literally Tim Curry looks at her like are you stupid yeah and he's just like I guess I'll go with it but you've somehow gotten stupider in the last couple weeks and it just like, I was just like, oh, this is so, this is such a lame way to step off of that plot line to be like, oh, she's a little girl and she's dumb as rocks. That's why she thinks he's special. Yeah. Not that he's been grooming her for the last, you know, how many episodes? Yeah. Like trying to prove that like things on this world don't have to be like other stations. No, no. She's dumb and she thinks he's a wizard. Oh, and there's an interesting thing. Uh, I, I, we're going to learn that it doesn't have much to do with the plot line, but they drop a line that all Tarians are male. That's true. There, we do learn in this episode because basically what will happen, we can kind of get into it, is a Tarian after sorry after True talks to Gaul and says, "Hey, can you help me save Yuli from the Tarians?" He's just like, "Well, this is great. I can use this to my advantage." And we pop back to camp. A Tarian shows up. He's escaped Gaul's enslaving of them, so now Gaul knows one is still out there, and he kind of just stands there. He's a little threatened by them, so he pulls out his staff and uses like electrical hand energy to shoot fireworks out of his staff as they do very very strange we're learning some strange powers about these Tarians. but he basically stands there and waits for them to come to a decision of whether they'll help him free his people by communicating via solace and in this time solace is able to find out hey they're all males for some reason and i mean you'll have some questions about this but well you know how he found that out (laughs) how (laughs) he tried to have relations with it Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> we know he's a horn dog. I was I was going to say the other thing we learned and you'll have a you'll have questions about this as well is Dr. Heller goes out and scans him to get a sense of what the Terrians are and she says the readings indicate they are equal parts vegetable, mineral and animal. I think she says I, I wrote it down somewhere. I think she says something like a mosquito is closer to a human than they are to us. And I was like there's no way there's no way this creature that has almost exact physiology to a human is further away from us than a mosquito is. It was so dumb. Honestly, she must have her reading on probably like fo- she's probably focusing on the ground or something, knowing Heller. She's like pointing it in the wrong direction. There's like a great flashback in this show where Dr. Heller is just like not a doctor. And she's like writing a fake resume. She's like, well, hopefully I never have to like uh, do any of these skills. And she's <laughs> exactly. It, it is to the point where it must be conscious now because she just seems bad in everything. No, I mean, I think the fact is, I think they're trying to imply that these Tarians aren't 
like I think they're trying to apply there are both there are all things on this planet. Perhaps they are the physical embodiment of the planet, right? Because they like contain the DNA of everything. But you're right. Looking with Doctor Heller and how many times she whiffs her readings, it just becomes very funny. She's like, I don't know. Uh, um, uh, I mean, I, guys, I've made it very clear when I made that horse. I know what I'm doing. Um, but essentially, what happens is like in the morning, Danziger and Devon set off with the Tarian. Tarian essentially is going to put itself out there to be captured by Gaul in order to show Devon and Danziger the danger they're in. Basically, that Gaul is enslaving them, putting shock collars on them, and that this is how they need to help them is by freeing them from Gaul. Mm-hmm. So Gaul is now known for sure to be the enemy. He's definitely enslaving these people, and that this is something they're going to have to deal with. I I mean. <laughs> It's such it's so weird. Why is why is Gaul only now choosing to enslave the Terrians after being there for 15 years? Like what after this group of like it feels like these like why would he choose to do this now? Wouldn't he be more focused on the Eden project? Like I, none of this plot makes a lot of sense to me for his character. I actually thought that they were implying not only has he been doing this for a long time, but that these are just what's left of him doing a almost systematic eradication of that of that species oh i see well that maybe makes more sense than this is this is this is a long thing he's been working on he's just getting to the end game of it yeah that's what i thought but i mean it's not clear either way that would make that would make me happier jordan so i'm gonna choose to believe okay So they, uh, Devin and Danzinger return back to camp. They sort of plan an attack. They're like, we're going to, we're going to go out there. We're going to get him. We're going to end this enslavement. And I think you might've noted this earlier in the episode, but there is this one extra they really focus on a couple times in the beginning of this episode. Like they really push in on this, this seemingly background character who's just wandering around. And then suddenly we cut to her. She has lines. She's apparently in charge of the armory. I don't know where she came from, but she's now a very important character. And not only that, I looked it up on IMDb, and I, I don't know the character's name. I, I forgot to write it down, but she is in every single episode. Yeah, it's very funny. I was just like, whoa, whoa, why is this person so important? <laughs> She's like the equivalent of um, Chief O'Brien in Next Generation, where he used to just show up at the beginning of the show, and then eventually, like, I don't know, he's, he's in charge of transporters. And her haircut is so 90s. Yeah, <laughs> she doesn't look great. Um, but at any rate, they, they basically arm up and we get a, a little glimpse of maybe a little bit about Yale here, because one of the things they have in their armory is a attachment to one of their guns called a Meg Pro grenade launcher. And nobody knows how to use it because they're banned on the stations because they're so explosive, I guess. Mm-hmm. So no one knows how to attach it to the to the really big guns. But uh, as they're saying that Yale grabs it and like automatically attaches this like grenade launcher to the front of a gun and we get like a sense of maybe what his criminal background is he's if he's an explosive he's a weapons expert of some sort but he mentions he can't use the gun so he clearly has the knowledge of how to use it but he can't because he has in a, a violence aversion program uh installed in his brain i guess yeah yeah um, I don't know if we'll find out in the future. I have this idea in my mind now that uh, Yale it used to be some sort of like um, rebel leader. I think he was leading some sort of rebellion and now he's uh, now he's a robot slave. I think one thing's clear. There's going to be an episode later on where his programming is halted in some way and we get to see him be a real uh, cool guy. Right, right, right. So while they're arming up, True gets really worried because very clearly they're going to go off and like hunt Gaul. So she grabs her father and 
she admits finally that she snuck off to see Gaul and that he's not trying to do anything wrong. She asked him to use his magic powers to help Yuli. So immediately True's in trouble for sneaking off again. Danziger's like, you go to your vehicle and you sit in it. And he like walks her to one of the vehicles and slams the passenger side door so she stays inside. And then the shot of it is she's sitting in the vehicle. The driver's side door is wide open. And so she just leaves. She just gets out the other side. I was like, what is happening here? This is just like so... It's like the writer's like, I want her to get in trouble, but I also want her to have a very... Like, I just want her to walk out of the scene immediately and escape. And she, you know, she's basically running off to tell Gaul, look out, they're coming to kill you, basically. Oh, one thing you should note, because it becomes a plot point uh, in the next couple scenes, is that we've seen Gaul wear a necklace of types that looks like it's bones. And what we will find is, is bones, it's Tyrion bones that he wears around his neck. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, kind of, we get the best scene of this episode next. I mean, I'll see if you agree with me, but uh, you, you may not. We cut to Gaul, and he's in a field, and it, it, it's kind of funny. Like, there's, he does, in all the previous episodes, he seems to be a man with a lot of, like, forward thinking. He's got a lot of plans going on. In this episode, he just seems to be reacting to whatever's happening. But we get a scene with him. He's basically got his own Meg Pro grenade launcher and a, like a pile of grenades he's he's polishing and essentially getting ready to do battle with the Eden Project. He's just like, this is it. I'm finally going to do battle. But essentially what this is, is probably like a two minute long scene. Someone has written Tim Curry a monologue. And Tim Curry is just Shakespearing the fuck out of this monologue. Like, he is having a great time with this monologue. He's chewing the scenery, and it just goes on and on. And I really... It's a bad scene, but he does a lot of great work with it. That's a lot of him in this show, is just doing a lot with very little. I wrote down... Uh, hopefully, we can maybe pull some of the audio from this, but I wrote down I wrote down a little of the monologue, and ha- I'm going to attempt to read it as he does, because it's not really written Shakespearean, but he chooses to read it that way. Okay, let's hear it. Here's a quote. The pettiness of murder has lost its charm. I plateaued years ago, but slaughter, ah no, that tests spontaneity and skill and stamina. Eden Project, come and meet your fate. It actually sounds like a little bit like an answer, like uh, uh, when they used to go and interview Charles Manson, and they'd be like, what'd you have for lunch? And that'd be his answer. It is very funny. I I also like there's a scene later where, during not during later, like during his monologue, he's just like, if Poppet is to be spared... She shall spare herself. Like, it is, <laughs> it is crazy how much he's just chewing the scene for this, like, two-minute monologue someone's written for him. And I feel like they got there, and they're, they're like, someone's got to write him a monologue. We need someone to give him something to do. But the important thing is, we're coming to the big standoff now. Yeah, well, this is basically, as he's preparing his weaponry to go, True appears out of the forest. He's very happy. He's just like, oh, good, now I won't accidentally kill her during the final standoff. She shows up, and it, she fully asks him to run away she's like let's run away together i don't want you to die you and i will just run off and live on earth too but gauls is kind of like pop it like this has to there has to be a confrontation come let me show you my enslaved tarians let me show you what i'm capable of and again this is where the writing gets weaker is previously where he was able to spin his plans into more of a hopeful or like something that would sell a child that was a good idea. Here he just goes and shows her the Terrians he's enslaved, shows her how he's able to use a shock collar to force him, them to grow him edible grass, which I guess is how he survives. It's like they stick their fingers in the ground, edible grass grows, and he has food to eat. And he just starts like torturing one for fun in front of yeah. True. And he's like, why are you so upset? Isn't it fun to torture things? It is funny because he has been so subtle in his nefariousness before. And now it's just like, 
you have a problem that I'm evil? I'm like, yeah, she has a problem because she thought you weren't evil. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense. And, you know, True is basically like put off, but she's like trying to save her people. And he's just, and she kind of comes up with her own like really quick plan where she's just like, I brought a headset with me. I know you want a vehicle. Why don't you not kill the Eden Project and I'll steal a vehicle for you? And she basically like uses the headset to call one of the vehicles to them. But she does. She picks one of the vehicles that is like right in the middle of the camp. So everybody hears what she's saying, like, come to this location and like vehicle. I need you right now. And, you know, Danziger and a whole team of mercenaries, basically not mercenaries, but like people with weapons jump on the back of this vehicle and like pull it down. And like they set up a real uh, Trojan horse to come out yeah. to meet Gaul. And what I actually liked about this is it actually is a plan that a child would have come up with, which is I'm going to pretend to call a vehicle, but it'll be full of guys that are going to come, you know, shoot you. And Gaul sees right through the plan. So he's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Bring him. I'm, I'm all for it. It is great because he like we cut back to Gaul and he's just like, you know, Poppet, when they sent me to this planet, they sent me with a lot of the classics. Did you know I've read uh, Ulysses? What is it? The Odyssey? Which Iliad. The Iliad. So I've heard of the Trojan Horch before, and he just like basically picks up his gun and is about to blow up the entire container full of like as the vehicle shows up, he's just like, I'm just going to blow it up right now. So good work, Poppet. You uh, helped me out. But Danziger and Yale are at the top of the hill. And so when he's going to shoot the uh, uh, the truck, they're up there with their uh, fancy weapon. And how are they one step ahead of him? I, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. They we, Last we saw them, they were climbing on the back of that vehicle to Trojan Horse him. And somehow they knew to not, to get ahead of the vehicle and get a higher ground on him to essentially shoot his like he they shoot the ground he drops the gun there's like a whole thing where like i think this is where he does explain to he's just like oh this necklace protects me from terrians and true's able to pull the necklace off him and then also like use a remote control to free the terrians out of their shock collars so they're now they're free like there's it's a, it's a long it's not super confusing at the time, but it's just like a lot of stuff happens. Like, Tarians get free. His necklace is pulled off. They have to wrap everything up in, like, two scenes. So it's yeah. just like, he gets shot down, and she frees the guys, and then the Tarians uh, grab him, and then Well, no, but this thing, there's so much happens at that scene, because he grabs True and holds her hostage, and then Danzinger won't shoot at him because he's afraid. So Yale defies his nonviolence programming somehow very easily to grab the gun and, like, shoot at him again, so he drops the girl... And then, yeah, at this point, all the Tarians go to ground because they've escaped their shock collars. And we get another one of those cool sequences where, like, yeah. zombies start pulling you into the ground. And Gauls pulled into the ground, maybe for the last time. Maybe we'll never see him again. Maybe he'll pop up again in the future. But Gauls basically removed from the series. And then we get, like, a scene where, for some reason, Alonso comes across the dying Tarian who's being tortured. And what I like, though, is he's like, he's dying. I, I can't I can't hear you. Like, he tries to have a dream with it, and he can't. Then it cuts to a VO, and it goes, oh, yeah, the, the Terrian asked me to bury him. You just said you couldn't hear anything he said. Yeah, it's 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 very strange. Well, and that's it. They they have that moment where he's just like, well, let's bury this Terrian, which is just putting him on the ground, and he just gets sucked back into it. And I think in the voiceover, too, they say, someone, someone says that's this. It's like, the Terrians all gather around to sort of, like, for this funeral, and someone says, that's it? No Thanksgiving dinner? And I'm like, ugh, you guys suck at this. I know. It was it was just a bad... You're like, oh, no, you don't need to do that. And then, like, Yuli's completely better. He's permanently healed now, apparently, because the Tarians are free. And Danzinger and True make up. Like, father and son mm -hmm. are like, sorry I ran away. It's okay. Thanks for calling in that Trojan horse. The end. 
and there, there's one other note that I want to make that has nothing to do with the overall plot line of this, but there's a throwaway line at the beginning of this episode where True goes to apologize to Yuli because we had mentioned that, you know, what happened to the horse? And I thought Gaul took it, but we, we learned that the horse just ran off and is, is gone now. And so that's why she's apologizing. What I like, though, is I like to see some sort of implications and repercussions of this possible irrevocable damage that this now horse has done on this planet that it doesn't belong on like i'm hoping that somehow it just starts like genetically modifies and just starts repopulating itself like the like the toads in australia yeah exactly yeah that's pretty good actually that'd be a great episode i have a throwaway line i wanted to mention too i think at some point they're talking about sunrise and i think yale notes it's like oh it's so much different than the simulated sunrises on the station and I'm starting to realize the more they mention things from the station, it's just like, ugh, there's a better show happening on the station right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is funny that we're never on the station. Oh, I was going to ask you, remember a couple episodes, there was a line where they said, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they said the days are longer, but the year's shorter? Or was it the other way around? Uh, Yeah, no, I think that's right. Shorter, sh- no, shorter days, longer years. Okay, well, that makes sense then, because I wrote a note earlier when uh, Alonzo went missing and they said he left at uh, noon and it's eight o'clock now. And it was like pitch black. And I was like, I thought the days were longer, but maybe maybe that's what it was. Maybe it got no, no, it, I think it is shorter days because I remember thinking I'm like, I really want to know how many hours in a day now. So there we are. Yeah, that sort of wraps up those two episodes. Let's let's get into some ratings, I guess. Um, do you want to start us off for natural born Grendlers? Yeah, natural born Grendlers. I, again, I just felt like. It's starting to lose the the momentum that the show, I think, had at the beginning. And I just thought, like, it just wasn't a very good episode as it is. So I'm only going to give this a five and a half. Five and a half. I mean, I, I've, say, I've said it several times. I think the writing took a sharp downturn here. I'm not saying it was perfect before, but, like, I'm always going to enjoy a show. If it's taking big swings, even if it misses them, as long as those swings are big, that's fine. Yeah. But Natural Born Grendlers is just like a do-nothing episode that like is attempting to spotlight two characters, does a bad job of both of them. Neither plotline is all that interesting. The, like the best part of it is that a Grendler shows up. Like I just like looking at them. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree. But even that doesn't. I like. I think it's a four point five for me. Yeah. So what do you think of the uh, the next episode? I mean, in some ways, Promises to Promises is more upsetting to me because I like the Tim Curry character. I think it's a huge misstep to get rid of him. Like, you know, I, I don't watch a lot of Lost in Space, but, you know, they found a way to keep that villainous doctor in every episode. Like, I feel like that's the kind of thing where you, you get a scheming character and you just keep him around. Just like, the like, I there's got to be a way to keep that character in. Well, even just his, his aura, like the possible impending doom that he might have by being out there. Like, I think that is more interesting than just bringing him back and then getting rid of him. I, I agree. It was stupid. I think the writer who worked on the previous episode with Gull, or I think it was maybe two writers, did a, you know, I think they had the same show Bible and like what Gull's character was, but I think they did a better job making him, you know, they had to work within the restraints, but they still did a better job giving Tim Curry stuff to work with that made him an appealing villain, someone you could see someone else following, or at least like had that work. Whereas the writing in this episode really baselined him to like basic stupid villain baseline true to basic stupid kid like all the work anyone did for subtlety was stripped out of this episode like so it it was a huge setback it ruined the plot lines i was enjoying before i like this it felt like before the show felt like it should have been happening in 2004 
like it felt like the writing was like trying to do some serialization in the future and then this episode was like oh no wait let, let's remember what era we're in everything has to be yeah. solved by the end of the episode so we can get back to status quo it, it just felt like such a step backward for this show I, i'm gonna give it a three i think I, i'm gonna punish it a lot i feel the same as you at my point more is i don't think there's enough of an episode here i think they have five to ten minutes of a show that they've stretched out with ideas from previous episodes and they're they're sort of uh riding on the fumes of goodwill so i'm gonna give it a four out of ten i guess that's it they it's just like someone's like oh well, we gotta wrap that up it's like you you don't you don't need to wrap that up no it seems insane to me that i have no problem with them wrapping up gall or even killing gall but do it five ten episodes from now you got a whole season like it just seems he's this great character that you could bring back maybe even a couple more times and just keep developing these ideas of uh, dissension in the ranks but it's just like oh well they did what they did so there we are i know no reason to get rid of and like is that thing where i don't know you you obviously can recognize he's bringing a lot to the character and it's elevating your show like there's no there's no way they didn't notice i mean based on the monologue they gave him they clearly had some sense that was true just rewrite your arc a little don't like i know you probably had in your notes he dies in episode whatever four i don't know pivot pivot you guys when you see you've got something that's working don't just throw it away yeah maybe don't go back to the sick kid that is a plot line that's not working and not interesting to anybody i mean i think we're we're starting to get a sense of maybe why this thing didn't, yeah didn't end up having legs um burn, burning some goodwill with us at the very least <laughs> but that's it for this. We're going to take a little break now. And, oh, uh, hold watch on, it. Jordan. Oh, sorry. Guess what? What? It's time to check the escape pod. Oh, is it? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't think we're, I don't think we're, uh, we're going to be taken. I haven't, uh, I didn't, I don't have my space underwear on yet. <laughs> Whoa, what are you wearing? I need to know. Well, no, I need to use some very special underwear to keep everything in place when we take the escape pod. Don't you? <laughs> I just let it all hang out. <laughs> All right, Jordan. Give me a second. Let me punch these scores with the computer. We can see how that we can see how the show's faring currently with our uh, with the escape pod mechanism. All right, Jordan. I punched the scores into the continued drag computer. The uh, series average is above operating standards. We're at a six right now. I actually think that is probably a good average of what we've felt the show is so far. Well, it's funny too because I think previous to these two episodes it was probably running over a seven average but the i mean i mean i punished the show a lot this week but a real slip i think real slip for earth two too bad i maybe it can turn it around i'm hoping these two episodes were written by one writer i'm hoping maybe the other writers come back and we get a little bit a little more nuance a little more subtlety to this show but these episodes didn't show it i hope we get some more aliens i want some more weird puppet ugly drooling aliens I mean, we don't know anything about those little, what were they called? The pagodas or whatever? The little ghoulies? Yeah, yeah, I know. And they haven't come back. Big mistake. We could definitely get more into what they're up to. But as you were saying, next week, we're going to do a TV movie, take a little break from Earth 2, and then be back for more Earth 2 after that. Mm -hmm. um, but that about wraps it up. So, listener, you can always email us about Earth 2 at continuumdrag at gmail.com or, you know, whatever. And then you can, uh, we'll have some clips from the show on our Instagram and Twitter at continuumdrags, that handle. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that about wraps up for the episode. So uh, thanks for joining us, listener. And uh, Jordan, see you next week. See you then. Continuum Drag is recorded in Toronto, Ontario. Theme music by James Rex Seedler, produced by Jordan Dulloch and Luke Black. Special thanks to Aaron Hughes.